Just a quick word from our affiliates before we jump into the episode. SafePoint Loan Working App is a really simple way for you to manage loan working. Utilising what three words to get you pinpoint accuracy on the location of your people when you really need it. Get yourself a discount using the link and code in the description of this episode. Let's jump into today's podcast. What's up guys, welcome back to Rebranding Safety. Rebranding Safety is here to do exactly what it says on the tin. We're here to change the perception of health and safety, to rebrand it. We're here to challenge those over the top practices and we do that in two ways, by providing in-depth conversations on this podcast and we do that also by providing free how-to videos, tips and tricks, etc on YouTube. So if you're new here, hit that subscribe button. If you're on YouTube, the bell so you never miss another episode. You're on Spotify, it's follow, whatever it is, just hit it. In today's podcast, it's less of me and all of somebody else you'll be pleased to know. I barely say anything other than in this intro. This is a recorded keynote from the HSE Congress. Um, If you don't know what that is, we've done a vlog of our two days there, so go and check that out. And this is with Eric Honagel talking about Safety 2, talking all about Safety 2. And we recorded, we were very, very lucky to record his keynote. Let me kind of give my 10 pence worth to it first. So, like I said, we were very lucky to have a media partnership with with, uh, HSC Congress, so HSC Global Series, the business is called. If you don't know who that is, you can go check out the podcast interview we did with Paul a long time ago. um, Called It's in a mini-series called Breaking the Plateau with Paul Clark, so you can go check that out. Go watch the vlogs, I'll explain it much better in there, and you get to experience it. You get to come along to the UK Congress with me in the video, so go watch those. We'll link them in the description below. Eric's keynote, talking all about safety too. If I'm honest, it's very similar to you know, safety differently, any kind of like human paradigms, you know, how human performance, they're all very similar. Um, Eric is a very academic person. He obviously is quite nice in what he, nice, he's quite, he's a very nice guy, um, He, but he obviously loves what he does, but he is very academic. So for me, as someone who's not very academic, there was a lot going on in the slides. Didn't help, it was a very hot room as well. Uh, to be fair to Paul, um, who's running the event, he did fix that quick sharpish. Um, it was it was a long keynote as well, so it was difficult to follow, hence why I'm glad we watched, uh, we recorded it, because when I watched it back, you know, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Doesn't take away from the positives that he is talking about. You know, he's very much talking about, you know, why are you not interested in the positives of, of what's going on? And, and some interesting quotes as well, he's put, you can, analyze a happy marriage can you sorry can you analyze a happy marriage by learning from divorce you know when he says it like that it's like well yeah that makes sense doesn't it no you can't like let's learn about what went wrong why did you separate and then try and stop people from doing that or why don't we talk to people who are happily married and try and work out why they're happily married you know it's about focusing on the on the positives are we going to flip that and compare it to health and safety it's like we spend so much time looking at these lagging indicators as as people call them but like we we look at what went wrong to try and tell us what should go right um and i thought that was really interesting some things that i kind of thought is about is about 20 minutes in maybe a bit short uh, into the keynote and 
he, he kind of covers two quotes and one of them's like 20 years old um and and I, the overarching thing when i'm at these types of events is that you know why what makes it different why are we still not got this why has it taken us so long to get to the point where we still don't understand that that you know safety is about leadership safety is about just create creating a business where we 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 need to do what we what we need to do and we do what we need to do by being as safe as possible but that's all about kind of efficiency you know i like to talk a bit like risk efficiency you know it's about being efficient not going too over the top and not being underneath and and that kind of the overarching force i was listening to eric was it's really hot in this room but <laughs> the other overarching thought was like what's it going to take for people to listen you know people to change people to um to take this stuff on board you know um and that was interesting because when we look at and i'm talking about it all the time but and i've mentioned it in podcasts i believe but you know pirates had compensation scheme pirates had leadership pirates had um employee involvement you know all the basic things we're told about um good leadership within a business pirates did it pirates swords and shit like a long time ago so you know i i absolutely urge you to really listen to what eric's saying but don't just listen to it but like take notes and take it away and and, and implement it in your business um there's so much more but so many notes um about it but you know without me waffling on um i'll let you listen to eric's beautiful voice let's get into the podcast Health and safety is almost a victim of its own success. We are in a pressured regime of health and safety regulations. A huge fire engulfs a tower block in Children being forced to wear goggles to play conkers at school. Worst oil field disaster, 164 dead. Rebranding Safety, the modern health and safety podcast, crushing the stereotype. Brought to you by Risk Fluent and your host, James McPherson. always been it's part of human nature I think that that when something happens we try to find an explanation we need to understand we can't just say oh it happens uh, we need to say what why did it happen particularly if it if it's serious and if it hurts us or somebody else and and what I try to show here that is through the ages the explanation the nature of the explanations have changed as we got maybe wiser and wiser, uh, at least as, as societies developed and, and became more and more complicated, our explanations followed the, the stage of development of, of societies and our knowledge of the world. So in the beginning we said when something happened it was an act of God or an act of nature and sometimes people today even still say that. Then we, we learned that in fact, we said that it was an act of God up until the, 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 the middle of the, the 17th century. Then it became technical failures and we knew technology could fail and we could say, well, it happened because of a technical failure and we started just standing up there in the tent and sort of the, the roof is, is moving. And uh, if we had, had get a strong gust of wind or a storm and it rips it apart, then we'll probably say, we wouldn't say an act of nature, what we would say it's a technical failure, they haven't secured it well enough, and, and so on and so forth. So we can explain it, we know why it happened. 
Uh, and then later on, when, when it turned out that that wasn't enough, because it always happens that we get to situations or cases or incidents where our way of explaining it doesn't suffice. So we find a new explanation. At one point in time, we got to 1979, we got to the point basically where it wasn't enough to say technical failures, but, but uh, lo and behold, there was a substitute, the human error. And so we found the human error and the human factor, and, and, and uh, we could cause a brief relief because now we know why things so we unsafe acts. We, you don't make money out of or business out of unsafe acts, you make business out of safe acts. So why don't we look at them? And you've got the risk matrix, you've got the Heinrich's domino model, you've got the Swiss cheese, you've got the bow tie, and you know, there are, there's no, I'm sure there's almost as many models as there are delegates on, on, on this poster there, because everybody has their fav, favorite model and their favorite method to solve all the problems. And I know I worked in, in the risk consultancy in the UK many years ago. Not on the list here, by the way. So, so we all agree that since we don't like it when things go wrong, when we have accidents, then safety must, of course, focus on accidents and try and understand why accidents happen. And we must try to learn from accidents. That's what Trevor Clitz's book is called, Learning from Accidents. And that sort of been, that's what we all taught when you go to school or university or go to industries. We have to look at accidents. We have to learn from accidents. And, and by the way, the larger the accident is, the more we have to learn. It's sort of the idea that that is more serious and therefore there's more to learn. Whereas if something is trivial, there's nothing we can learn. Uh, and so we do that, and, and we, we, we may, and the paradox is we measure safety by counting the number of accidents, and we want the number of accidents to go down, and if it doesn't go down, we are, we are possible and say what, what's happening and, and, uh, and, and try to figure out and say what's, and try to say what is the cause of that, why did that happen? So all this led to some years ago, or oh, it developed gradually over, over many years actually, to the realization or the sort of tacit agreement amongst colleagues, people who work in the safety business who, when they met after work, and after meetings and sit down and, and talk and have dinner or whatever and, and, and say, well, this is, uh, uh, this can't be all, this can't be it, I mean, there must be something else. This way of dealing with accidents, what we call safety, by trying to eliminate them and trying to, of course we want to eliminate them, that's not the point, but trying to say safety is when we have no accidents. This, this isn't it, because uh, it actually doesn't work. We should have had perfect safety by now, it should work. And so there was sort of this growing, uh, uh, feeling that some, something was missing and, and, and about 15 years ago <coughs> we had the first, it's more than or more like 20 years ago, but 15 years ago we had the first meeting on, or, on resilient engineering, basically a bunch of people uh, happened to be able to get together because some sponsors were willing to 
to sponsor a meeting not knowing what this was all about, which was very brave of them. Uh, and we got a, a group of people together and sat down and, and talked for, for a week. It's interesting, we organized this meeting. I, I was part of the people who organized it. Uh, and and we, we said to people, would you like to come for a week and talk about, we, we have something we call, we think we can call it resilience engineering. We don't have any idea about what it is. And you're not supposed to give any talks or presentation. We just want to sit down and talk for a week. And everybody said, yes, we'd love to do that. Strangely enough, and, and we did. And, and it turned out there was something in it and it became resilient engineering. And later on, we sort of developed the ideas further and sort of said, well, really, we need to, we need to contrast two ways of thinking about safety. And, and the simple-minded way of contrasting something is to call it A and B or black or white or whatever. So we call it safety one and safety two. Which I must say now in, in retrospect wasn't very smart, but, but we're not very smart people. Uh, but anyway, it's stuck because people like, like dichotomies. It's so easy to think in terms of dichotomies. So we have safety one and safety two. And, and so basically safety one is the label now that we use to describe how we have been thinking about safety for thousands of years. That safety is a condition or a situation where as little as possible goes wrong. And we all want that. Don't misunderstand me. Even the people that, if you want to call them safety two people, which I think it's not a, not a good term, but even people who think in terms of, safe, of what they call safety two or whatever, I'll like, hopefully explain what it is. The aim is still the same, to avoid accidents, obviously, but the ways of doing it differ. That's the difference. The difference is not in the aim, the difference is in the approach and the method. So safety one is, so we define safety one, or you could just call it safety as this, a condition where the number of things that go wrong is uh, as little as, uh, as small as possible. Uh, and we need to understand why accidents happen. And this leads to a bit of a paradox, because we, we all say if, if we need to understand something better, we need to study it, right? And we need to understand safety better, right? So we need to study safety. So what do we choose to study? We choose to study situations where things have gone wrong. And the situation where something goes wrong, where it's an accident, is a situation that's lacking in safety. And the more serious it is, the more lacking in safety it is. So how do we think, or why do we think we can understand safety better by focusing on situations where we also say there's no safety? How can you study something when it's not there? And if you put it like that, this is a rhetorical question, of course. You can't. Uh, so the, the, the conclusion is, well, we need to study something that's there. So we need to say, what is safety, actually? So what we do is, when we look at accidents, is we look at snapshots of situations where a system or an organization or a company didn't work as it should. We look at the snapshots. We analyze the snapshots. We try to understand why these situations happen by looking at them step by step and say, what, 
went before and, and why did it lead to that and what, what are the consequences. But we only look at them sort of in short sequences. We never go very far back and we never go very far ahead. Uh, but what we're looking at really is the absence of safety. And, and what I try to show by this diagram, you've got the sort of the curved line, which is called the limit of unacceptable performance. Uh, below that, you have the unacceptable performance, obviously. <coughs> Above that, you have the acceptable performance, which is this mess of, of gray lines, which illustrates that a lot of things happen there, uh, but a lot of things that are changing and variable all the time. But uh, we don't really know that's why they're gray, because we don't look at them. So when we look at safety, we look at what goes wrong, and we look at the snapshots, and we analyze the snapshots, and we report the snapshots, and we know exactly how many snapshots we have. We know exactly how many accidents there are, but we don't know how many things that go well. I, I, as a case in point, I, uh, I was talking to an airline last year, uh, and they celebrated that in, in the last quarter they had had zero hard landings. And you know exactly how many hard landings I have every quarter. So I asked him, my, I'm a psychologist, am I allowed to be naive? So I asked him the naive question, how many landings do you have each quarter? And they said, uh, yeah, we can, we can find out. But, but they didn't know. And they thought, that's odd. Why are you not interested in the, in the, in the good landings, in, in the non-hard landings? Because that's what you want after all, isn't it? That's what you try to have more of. Because if you have more of those, then you will have also less of the heartland things. But you, you get it in a different way. So one of my, my, my cle very clever colleagues, Marie de Vos from, from the Netherlands, put it like this. Is it possible to understand what a happy marriage is by analyzing and learning from divorces alone? And I'm sure you'll agree that the answer is no, it isn't. If you want to understand what a happy marriage is, you should look at what makes a happy marriage, not what makes a divorce. I mean, a happy marriage is not trying to avoid a divorce. Uh, I don't think that that's, that's a recipe for a happy marriage. I'm, I'm sure you all agree. This is a man who's been married twice. Anyway, um, <laughs> but you know, it's, it's a triumph of hope over experience, as Johnson said. But you can just turn it around and say, well, replace marriage and, and divorce and say, is it possible to understand what safety is by analyzing and learning from accidents and incidents alone? And the answer is no, it isn't. Safety is not just the absence of accidents and incidents. Safety is something in itself. So what is it? That's what we need to find out. So, the, the, the consequence of that is, and, and I'm, of course I'm happy to, to, to quote other people, to say, well, the problem is actually not safety in the classical sense of looking at accidents. The problem is something else. Uh, uh, so James Reason, whom I'm sure you all know, uh, said 20 years ago to the state, actually, safety is defined and measured more by its absence than by its presence. Carl Weig, even earlier in 1987, said, he said, reliability is a dynamic non-event. But you, you, I, I in, interpret it to say, and I think he wouldn't disagree, you can also say, safety is a dynamic non-event. 
It's the non-event that's interesting. It's when nothing goes wrong. So when nothing goes wrong, then we're safe. When something goes wrong, we're unsafe. So we need to understand why we have the non-events. And, and as I said, the non-events are dynamic, meaning that it's because we are able to keep things momentarily under control that we have the non-events. But we have to keep doing it constantly and continuously and work very hard at it. And he made a very, very good point. He said, non-events are invisible because they happen all the time. Therefore, we get used to them and we stop paying attention. So that's why in, in, in safety, we deal with events that are out here, you know, the low probability events, much better than the laser pointer because the, the red dot is so small, I can't see. So this, this you can see. So the, the low probability events and, and in our culture, if they're on the left side, they're bad. If they're on the right side, they're good. But it's the low probability events we're looking at. And they're visible. They're, we, we get used to them. And if, if the roof, if the top holding there flew off, we would notice that, wouldn't we? Even if we were in here, because there'd be a noise and so on. But the things that happen all the time, like I mean, when I went into to, to the, to the tent there, I sort of, I heard the noise and I saw the top holding, waving. I guess the people who were at the stands in there, who have been there for half an hour and an hour, they don't notice it anymore. They just get used to it. And we all get used to things that happen all the time. And it's very valuable that we do that. It's a, it's a, it's a very strong survival mechanism. If we didn't do that, we wouldn't be able to survive. We, it's built into us that we disregard things that happen all the time. We don't pay any attention to them because there are other things that we need to pay attention to. And it's, it's, a, it's, it's a strong evolutionary mechanism. But when we talk about things that go wrong, when we talk about safety, safety one and safety two, the problem is that the things that happen all the time, the things that go well, the landings, and, and, and we, did, we did find out <coughs> this airline, they have every quarter, every three months, they have about 90,000 landings. And 90,000 go well. And, and this quarter all went well. Sometimes one or two doesn't go well. But all of them go well, basically, and they should. Otherwise, I wouldn't fly with them, believe me. Um, but we stop paying attention to them because it happens every day. It happens you know, from morning to night and, and you can't pay attention to everything that happens, everything that goes well. You just take it for granted. And we should be able to take it for granted, obviously. But we should also understand how it happens because it doesn't happen by magic. <coughs> so if you look at it, then you can say, well, in our daily lives, there, there, it's, life is full of, in fact, life is made up of what I would call, or what Weick would call, dynamic non-events. Things that just happen, things that are just there. You go out to, to, to get coffee, and there's coffee in the coffee machines. You don't even think about it. But if there wasn't, you would think about it and say, why, why the bloody and so on, haven't they put, put beans in there, or water in there, or milk in there, and, and so on and so forth. Which, if something is missing, you notice it. And you start to say, why, why, why? But if something is there, you don't notice it. But you should notice it and say, 
How did that happen? Not, not that it's a miracle, but it's important to understand how it happens. Because that's how we make our lives. That's, that's a basic our basis of our businesses. That's a basis of our daily existence. Whatever you do, when I go to the supermarket, things are there. And I never, now I think about it now because I know I should think about it. But usually we don't, we just take it for granted. And things that happen when you go, when you travel here, when you travel back, and hopefully everything works, knock on wood. Uh, but, but we just take it for granted that it works. Of course it does. There's electricity, there's water, there's... Uh, I mean, things are just there and we, we don't notice them because, it, of course, they're there because that's how we build our societies, that's how it works. So that gets to the idea that safety is a condition where <clears throat> as much as possible goes well. Not when as little as possible goes wrong, but where as much as possible goes well, then we are safe. Uh, but then the question is, how do we know that things go well? Or do we know why things go well? And what can we do to ensure that they will continue to go well? And that's the difference between safety one and safety two. In both cases, we, we would like not to have accidents, but a safety one perspective. And it's really, I mean, since I'm here, I can illustrate to you what I mean by safety one and safety two. It's a perspective. If I stand here, I have, a safe, I have a one perspective on you. I can see, I can see all of you, but some of you are sort of behind others and I can't see, see your faces and I can't see all the details. But I can change my perspective. I can walk over here. I still see the same people, but now I see you from a different perspective. I can see things I didn't see before. That's the difference between safety one and safety two. You change your perspective. You look at things in a different way. And, and we still agree on the, on the objective is to have as few accidents as possible. But instead of trying to have fewer accidents by preventing accidents, we try to have fewer accidents by, by trying to make sure that things go well. And you can only make sure that something goes well if you understand how it goes well. Therefore, we have to study what happens when nothing happens. We have to study uh, why things go well. We also have to study accidents, of course. Nobody would, would, would say otherwise. When, some, when things don't go well, we have to look into that. We have to try and understand it. But it's not sufficient. It's not enough. If you only do that, you're not getting forward. You're just trying to, try to, to think when you're driving traffic. When you drive, if you were only trying to avoid collisions, how would you ever get anywhere? Because then your direction would be determined by what others do and you try to swerve and avoid all the time. You never get anywhere. When, when, when Volvo started working on adaptive cruise control many years ago, I would, had some contact with Volvo and I talked to one of the guys. He was a test driver and he said, on, he remembered on his first test drive with adaptive cruise control, he was going from Gothenburg to Lund, which, and there's a motorway there. And he went out on the motorway and put on the adaptive cruise control and, and, and the, the car sort of kept the, kept the safe distance to the car in front. And somebody else would put in in front of him and the car would slow down and keep a safe distance to the new car and another car would slow in. And he said, I felt I was going backwards by the time. So he was very safe, but he wasn't getting anywhere. So if you only try to avoid collisions, you can't drive, you'll never get 
to home or to work or wherever we want to go. We should drive to try to get to where we want to get and try to avoid collisions at the same time by keeping a safe distance, by finding the field of safe travel, as, as Gibson uh, said in 1934, 1935 or so. It's, it's, it's a very old idea. So safety two is to say, well, it's a condition where as much as possible goes well. So we need to understand how things go well. And we need to manage how things go well. And when we look at how things go well, we find that things go well because we are able to make adjustments to the situation, hence all the way we curves. We are variable, there's modifications all along. But basically, you can say we are, in everything we do, we make adjustments to the situations, small adjustments. Uh, that, and that, that we're used to and that we know work and, and that are extremely helpful. But that's why things go well. But once we adopt that view, then we can also see that when things don't go well, it's for the very same reason. It's because people make adjustments and the adjustments are always approximate. They can never be perfect. We have to make them because we don't have enough time and information and resources and so on. And because we don't have enough time and information and resources, the approximations also will be approximate. They cannot be perfect. But they're good enough because we learn how to do that and we know how to do that. And that's how we get through daily life. So we can look at that, and we have looked at that, and many people are looking at that, and there are, I don't know how many papers on, on, on that by now, it's, it's sort of becoming, it's a great sport actually to do that. Uh, when we see that, we can see people make adjustments, and when I, when I say people, I deliberately have not just the people at the sharp end to do the work, but also people in the boardroom, because believe me, people in the boardroom, and uh, would you believe politicians also make adjustments? Uh, they don't do perfect rational decisions all the time, but they, sort of, they try to wiggle through. Uh, and no comments to recent uh, events here. Uh, but we make adjustments to try to create a situation where we can do our work. And where, so we don't just start to doing our work. We make sure we have the tools and the place and the people and whatever else is needed for that. And we try to maintain that situation. We make adjustments to compensate for things that happen on the way, resources that may be uh, running low or being, being spent, or things that change, or interruptions, or, or new demands, and so on. Like, like we started this session late, because there was a need, because the previous session ran over time, and there was a need for more time to talk and socialize, which is, which is one of the purposes of this meeting. So we started a bit late. That's an adjustment. And nobody minds that, because that's all, all in, it's all to our, our benefit, I hope. And we make adjustments. Uh, if you can see that something that's going to be troublesome, that's going to prevent me or us from doing something, so we try, want to avoid something, that's when we make adjustments. But we make all these adjustments all the time without thinking much about them. And we know that others make them all the time. And we know what to expect from others, and that's why it works so well, because it's predictable. It's not predictable in the sense it, it's always the same things that happen, but there are patterns in it, and we no, get to know these patterns. We learn them, and they become predictable, and performance can then improve. And that's why we have what we call work, things that work well. Here I call it resilience performance, because in 
going to talk a bit about resilience and, and uh, resilience potentials, but, but the performance above the limit of unacceptable performance, that's really what we're interested in. That's where the money is. You say, well, this is not managing a company, but it's, it's an analogy to managing a company. It's sailing a ship, a ferry, <coughs> in, the, in the, this is the archipelago outside Helsinki in Finland, which I don't know if you've been there, but it's full of rocks, believe me. And, and you've got these big ferries sailing there, and they know where they're going, they're sailing through the channels. But basically, it's, it's a good illustration that in order to get in order to sail there, you need to know where you, here, my arm is too short. You need to know the target. You need to know where you want to be. When you manage something, you need to have a goal. You need to know where you are. You need to know your position. Because then you know the distance or the difference between your position and the goal. And the third thing is, you need to know how to move from where you are to where you want to be, right? It's very simple. It works very well if you talk about driving, sailing, flying, managing a production, a batch of something, or whatever, building something. The goal is usually well-defined. You know what you want to achieve. The position, where are we now? What is the situation now? is usually well known. And how to get from where you are to where you want to be is also something you know, because it's, it's a tangible process. What about safety? What's the goal of safety? Zero accidents? Not really, I think. So what's a, what, what's a target for safety? And where do you set it? How do you set the target? Uh, so that's one thing. We're not really sure what the target is, except that we want to be safer. But that's a relative definition, not an absolute definition. Being safer is sort of really wishy-washy. Uh, the position, how do we know how safe we are right now, at this moment in time? Well, we know how safe, we know how many accidents we had last year, or the last quarter, or maybe up until yesterday. Uh, but do we really know how safe we are now? So we have a problem. We're not really sure what the goal, the target is, we're not really sure what the position is, which means that we don't know what the difference actually is. And the third problem is, what are the means to get from where we are to where we want to be? Many of you are responsible for safety management, so you know what I'm talking about. What are the, if you're in a car, we know how to, how to direct the car, the, the, the direction and, and the speed and so on. In a ship, in an airplane, the same. you've got all these wonderful things. And you've got, you've got, of course, safety dashboards, but I haven't seen safety controls. Where, where are the handles? Where are the knobs and dials that you control safety with? So a dashboard is no good. It's like having a car where you only have the, all the instruments that tells you how you're, where you are and what the condition is, but you can't control it. That's not a very good feeling. So that's a challenge. How do we do that? So the question when you talk about managing safety, and here I'm talking about managing safety either in, both in the sense of, of avoiding accidents in the class safety one interpretation, excuse me, and in the sense of being able to do things better. 
how do we know where we want to go? So we need to be able to set, to define an operational target. You can't manage something unless you can define an operational target. How do we know where we are? And we, I mean, there's no shortage of, of, of uh, indicators or measurements or models or so on that tell you, usually they tell you how well you have been doing, sometimes they also tell you how well you are doing. We, we have this, uh, we reason by analogy because we say, well, if you have built a system like, like a car engine or a jet engine or, or whatever, you know it so well that you know exactly what to measure to tell you what's the state of the system. But we don't build safety and we don't build organizations. We don't know them in, with that degree of detail that, that we can say, oh, this is what we need to measure. And we wouldn't know how to measure it anyway. So the problem is the position. Third problem is the means, because the means is how do you change something? And in order to change something, to move, change the position in a, in a metaphorical sense or the physical sense, you need to know what, how, to, how to drive it, how to move it. And we don't know how organizations work, to be honest. We have, have plenty, you can see, plenty of models of organizations, plenty of nice diagrams with boxes and arrows and lines, such as communication, responsibility, and, 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 and this and that. But nobody has built an organization. Organizations grow from past experience and ideas and they're nurtured and you know they never grow exactly in the same. We don't know exactly how they work. And my, my, my humble suggestion is that this is our model of an organization. It's a black box. We don't know what's going on inside. We know we can do something and then a while later and sometimes a long while later there's a response of some kind and we try to make an inference and say, oh, this happened because of that. Let's try this and let's see what happened. If you want to know the big scale, take the national economy of any country in the world. Uh, we don't know, really know how it works and people try, oh, let's, let's increase interest rates, let's, uh, let's increase public spending, let's, and there are various theories about that, but nobody knows for sure. That's why it's so easy to get a, a Nobel Prize in economics. Two, two, two non-economists have got it, that's how easy it is. One of them even a psychologist, I mean, how low, how low can you get? Um, so, so the question is, how do we think about how systems work? How organizations work, and we tend to think about them as if they were a simple mechanical system. I do this, do that, and I change that, I come with this new rule, this new facility, whatever, and this, this is going to happen, that's a consequence. So it's like a causal, simple linear causal way of thinking. Because most of our thinking about organizations is about at least a hundred years old, but more sort of what we call the modern thinking about organizations is 50, 70, 100 years old. And, and systems in those days were what we call simple systems. They were understandable. Then systems became complicated. We become what we call socio-technical systems that are more difficult to understand. I mean, in the, in the first place, you can actually see what happens in, the, in, in when you get to complicated systems. You can't really see what happens. You can see people that are doing something, but a lot of what happens happens in here, and it's not observable. And today we have systems that are 
are complex or intractable even, entangled, so we don't really know what's going on inside. But that's a problem if you want to manage them. You can't manage something you don't understand. So when, when you look at management, we have the goals, and the goals are often defined by traditions, or by standards, or by requirements, or by comparisons, and the, the measured, we measure the outcome in certain ways, usually by some, usually by, in, in terms of safety, by measuring what goes wrong, not by what goes well. Oh, we do have balanced scorecards and performance indicators and so on, but not much really. Uh, when we look at the position, we have indirect measures of the position, I'm, and I'm coming to that because that's sort of really what I want to focus on here, how, how to know your position. Uh, but we don't really know very well. Uh, and that's why I have this map here, because in the old days when you had the map of how of sort of where you were, but weren't really sure where you were and what was happening there, that's what you wrote. Here be dragons, I mean, because there, was, there were unknown dangers here, and I think that's where we are very much. And when you come to the means, the steering wheel, what means do we have? How do we, how do we decide what to do? We have legacy, we have practices, we have current trends, we look at what others do and they seem to be successful and we try to do that as well. Uh, there are many famous examples of that. But by and large, we, are really, we really have a problem here. And so if we do want to manage safety, if we do want to manage organizations so that we have fewer accidents in the sense that more things go well, we need to understand how things go well. So coming back to this, you can say, well, if you want a measurement of what goes on up there, well, you can, you can try and measure this, and this is what we do. But it's not really useful, because it doesn't tell us what happens up there. We would love to have direct measurements of what goes on. But we don't know well enough what happens in an organization to say, Here, here's, how, here's where you can go in and measure something. So, the, the uh, only solution that I can see is what we call proxy measurements. And a proxy measurement is a measure of something that you know or can argue is relevant for what you want to measure. It's not a direct measurement, but it says something about what you really want to know about. And fortunately, we do have proxy measurements of resilience. And, and again, coming back to resilience, what is resilience? Resilience is an organization can perform in a resilient way if it can function as required under expected and unexpected conditions alike. So we're not talking about resilience as a quality, we're talking about resilience performance as a characteristic way of performing. And it's able to do what it should do both when both when things go as expected and, and when they don't. And, and the unexpected conditions are not only threats and, and, and hazards and disturbances, they're also opportunities. A good business should be able to make use of opportunities. Even in, even in the workplace, and you see that every day if you go out and look at how people do their work, and you, even if you look at yourself, even think of yourself in driving, you, you see opportunities all the time and you use your opportunities to position yourself, to save a minute here, to save a minute there. Of course we do that, and that's essential to be able to do that. And what resilience engineering says, well, in order to be able to do that, we need to have 
four potentials. <clears throat> and these are the potentials to respond, the potential to monitor, the potential to learn, and the potential to anticipate. <clears throat> so we need to be able to respond when there is a need to respond. We need to be able to ready. We need to be able to respond to threats, but we also need to be able to respond to opportunities. I mean, it, organizations that can't use opportunities, you know what's going to happen to them. You're going to win. We need to be able to monitor them. So we need to be able, we need to know what is going on inside the organization and in the surroundings. We need to know what is the status, what are the trends, what is going to happen next. And of course we do that. That's why we have, have KPIs and so on. Uh, even though they're not really up to date. So we try desperately to understand what is going on, what is going to happen. And again, I, wouldn't, I, I could give you a wonderful political example, but I won't do that. Uh, we need to be able to learn. We need to be able to learn from what has happened, both what has gone well and what hasn't gone well. Because if we don't learn, then we always respond in the same way. And if you always respond or react in the same way, it's not going to work in the long run because the conditions change. So you need to learn. You need to, to, change, to change the way of, of responding. And we need to anticipate. We need to be able to look ahead into the future, into the short-term future, into the long-term future. Sometimes the very long-term future. The very long term could be like 20 years or 40 years or 60 years. I mean. Uh, Coming back to the coronavirus, I mean, in, in, in China, they built a hospital in 11 days, lo, lo and behold. But I also know from the last time that when they had the SARS, they tear them down afterwards for not needing them longer. In Denmark, when we're trying to build a super hospital, and we are trying to build super hospitals, it takes planned 10, 12 years, actual maybe 15 years, and they're going to stay there forever. So we need to have a longer time horizon when you think about that. And, and, and I'm, not sure, I'm not sure I trust any of our, our, our governmental departments to be able to think 40 years ahead and, and actually build and prepare for that. Uh, but then we are in the European Union, of course, so what can you expect? Um, <clears throat> no, so you're doing much better. Uh, sorry. No, I, pr I promised myself I wouldn't talk about that. <laughs> so and we need this because if you can't respond when something happens, then you're going out of business. That's obvious. On, as an individual, as a company, as an organization, as a nation, if you can't respond, then you're going to die sooner or later, die in, in the metaphorical sense anyway. If you can't monitor, you need to monitor because if you don't monitor, if you don't know what's going to happen, then everything that happens is a surprise. And if everything that's and I mean literally everything that happens from the moment you open your eyes in the morning is a surprise, then life is going to be very, very difficult. I don't, I'm not even sure I want one surprise a day. You know, once a year or twice a year, that's fine. Not once a day, not a hundred times a day. I couldn't survive if everything that happened was say, oh, what's that? I didn't expect that. That's new. I haven't seen that before. And I wouldn't be able to respond. 
and I wouldn't be able to learn anything because I'll just be confused. And it's important to learn because otherwise you just repeat what you've been doing again and again and again. And you need finally to be able to anticipate because you need to be able to look ahead and be prepared. It's different, monitoring is looking at what happens. Anticipation is thinking about what may happen, what could happen, both in the organization and outside in the world around us. So these are the four potentials for resilience and, and the argument is that you can actually look at these and you can actually measure them. And that's a nice thing, you can measure them because if you measure them, you get an idea about how well is this organization doing in terms of these potentials, which means how well is it actually prepared to, to respond and to, 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 respond to, to work or to function. We can, we can ask the questions not by saying, how well are you able to respond? How well are you able to monitor and so on? You, you shouldn't ask him on that level, it doesn't make sense. It, was, it makes as, as little sense as saying, how resilient are you? That's not a good question. You can't say that. But, and I've just given some, I'm sure you can easily think of other, other detailed questions. Like, for which, for which events are you prepared to respond? What, what, are you, what, what, are you, what have you thought about? What are you prepared for? Are your preparations adequate? Are your resources adequate? How quickly can you respond? How, I mean, the storm that came on Sunday, how quickly are we able to respond for this and that, for floodings, for roofs falling off and so on? In some cases we are prepared, in some cases we aren't prepared. Say the coronavirus, are we prepared to respond or not? And obviously some authorities in China weren't prepared to respond, so they tried to, to quell it. So, but it's always a question, you can ask that, how well are we prepared to respond by asking detailed questions that, are, that you know are important for the organization that you work in. There are no standardized questions here. There have to be specialized diagnostic questions for your organization. The same with monitoring, the same with learning, the same with anticipation. You can ask these questions they're simple to ask, they're meaningful to answer, they're easy to answer, and they give you a profile of how well an organization is doing with regard to, to the potentials for resilience. What we have, in fact, are <coughs> sets of questions, and we call it the resilience assessment grid. And don't, please don't ask me about why we call it the grid, because that was just a name that sort of came out of nowhere when you think about this years ago. And, and as, as very often, you know, I'm sure you know that, that, that we're, you're, sort of, you're supposed to go to a meeting in two weeks and present something and you desperately try to think of a name for what you're going to do and, and, and here we came up with this name. So anyway, it's stuck. Uh, but what, what we have now, and it's been developed over, over, over 15 years now, we have sets of questions for each potential, we have a set of generic questions which are not intended to be used, but are intended as a basis for sitting down and saying, which questions should we ask for our organization here? Which are relevant? So you make questions specific, you make them diagnostic, and you make them formative, which means that so concrete that when you get the answer, uh, then you know what to do about it. So the questions give you 
the, the, the four potentials, if you, if you get the, the, the answers to that, then you should do that regularly, of course. It gives you an idea of where's your position. Where are we now? It also helps you to say, what is the target? How good do we want to be? What's our ambition with regard to each of the, these detailed questions? And that's much easier than to say zero accidents. Zero accidents is not meaningful. But if you say, we need to have a, a, a response time for these types of, of events, of, uh, as, as we do in many cases, less than five minutes, less than five hours, less than five days. And equally, we need to say, we need to be able to continue the response for two days, two weeks, two months, take bushfires in Australia. You run out of resources, you run out of fire, uh, firefighters, you run out of material. So, it's, so being able to respond is not only being able to do something when it happens, it's being able to sustain the response for a long enough time, and that requires anticipation. So these are sort of weaved together. But you can use this to say, this is our target, this is our goal, have we actually met that? You can also use this to say, because the questions are diagnostic and formative, to say, well, how can we actually do that? How can we change that? If you get, get an, an, an answer that said that, and, and I've, I have, don't have any of the concrete examples here because we didn't have time, and, but on, so far nobody has waved at me and told me to shut up, so I'll just continue <laughs> a bit more. Um, but we do have examples of organizations that look at their own performance and say, are we doing this well enough, for instance, uh, uh, in terms of, of reporting, uh, and, and you ask people, you ask people, do, do you do you get, do you think you get adequate feedback from the event reports that you submit? And if they say no, which they do sometimes, well, then you know what to do. You, at least you know more concretely what the problem is. You know there is a problem here. It may be a perceived problem, but there is a problem, and you can start to think, what can we do about that? How can we improve the situation? So, so the it sets the potentials is, is actually a way both to help you to define more concrete targets. It's, it's a good way to try to assess your situations to get what I call a profile of, of uh, what, the, what the state is of the organization at any one point in time. And it also helps you to say, well, what can we actually do to, uh, to improve matters? So, last slide. <coughs> just to try and solve all, sum all this up. Uh, if you take the two views, and in some sense, I think it's, I'm not happy to, to contrast safety one and safety two, as I've tried to say. They're not either or. It's two perspectives. It's two different ways of looking at things, and therefore all two slightly different ways of doing things. But, but let me say that nobody will say, go home and throw away all that you do and drop everything and start from scratch again. The only thing I'd say, go home and do what you normally do, but maybe try to look at it in a slightly different way. And if you look at it in a slightly different way, then maybe this says, well, actually, I could do things a little differently, but not because somebody dictates it, but because it makes sense to you. But if you look at them, and, and, and I mean, rhetorically, you have to contrast it. So, Safety one, safety two. Safety one is typically the safety goal is to to zero accidents, el elimination of preventable harm. Whereas in safety two, we say, well, the safety goal is that as much as possible goes well, not goes right, because right is sort of absolutistic and say right or wrong. 
That's not interesting. Think of the normal distribution curve. It's not the right things that are right at the right-hand side versus wrong. It's, it's what I call the gray stuff in the middle that happens every day. That goes well. And that's what we're interested in. So the goal of safety two is as much as possible goes well. The means is, in safety one, if you want to avoid something from happening, you need to prevent and protect. In safety two, if you want something to happen, you need to, to support it, you need to grow it. And of course, if you can make sure that something goes well, then it doesn't go wrong at the same time. So you have actually achieved what you wanted to do and achieve from a safety one perspective. Measurements, classical safety one, in the classical safety world, we measure things that go wrong, we count things that go wrong, we count specific events. From a safety two perspective, we need to say, well, how do, how do things go well? How can we get an indication, a proxy measurement of how things go well? And, and we know we can do that, and, and, and there are companies around, around the world that does that. And finally, I haven't said that much about that, but it's sort of implied in the, in the thinking about it that the, the, because we always need to understand why does something happen? And what we tend to do is think about it in a linear fashion. We say, well, this happened because that happened, and that happened because that happened, and so on, because that's nice and easy. And, and in fact, we have built the world like that, because I do something, and it has a consequence. And when I press this button the next time, the next slide will show. I'm on my last slide. You know, my, my, uh, my usher is coming in to throw me out. Uh, so, so the mechanism is different. I haven't said much of that, but in, 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 from the safety tool thinking and the resilience engineering thinking, and I think a modern way of thinking is we need to think in a way that's nonlinear, which of course is tricky because it's easy to say linear and nonlinear. It's more difficult to explain what nonlinear is. But, but fortunate, we have the, the concept of emergence that, that, that uh, your great philosopher George Henry Lewis uh, came up with in the 1870s, I think. Uh, so that's a, that's a strong tradition about that. So there are differences. Uh, so, so what I would, what I've tr been trying to say is, here, here, here are diff two different ways of looking at things. Uh, you might want to try to maybe look at things in a slightly different way. If you want to look at it in a slightly different way, there are actually things you can do. We have, I just measured, measured, mentioned one method here, the resilience assessment grid. There are other methods, there are other ways you can do that. There's a great deal of practice around that now. It's because it's been going on for about 15 years or so, and, and, and many companies uh, around, around the world that, and are taking it up. I, I, uh, one airline, and I won't say which, but if you've flown with them, maybe you know, but, but their, mo their motto, their, their slogan now, which I see when I, when, I, when I visit the headquarters, it says, safety through resilience. They don't say safety first. They say safety through resilience. I even have a very nice T mark uh, which says safety through resilience. I'm very proud of that and use it every day. And I'm careful not to drop it. Uh, so with that, thank you very much for your attention. And if you have any questions. <laughs> Okay, guys, I hope you enjoyed that podcast, that recorded keynote from Eric. You know, he talking so, he talks about so much. Um, if you watch the video version, you'll be able to just see the slides. I think it's up in the top left-hand corner. Um, 
apologies for you know if, if at times it feels a bit choppy um it was a very hard event to record uh, this keynote um and, and we got there in the other end and um we had to chop some bits about but you know we got the gist of it basically um but a very very good podcast a very very good keynote you know talking about the premise of safety too is is understanding everyday performance so, you know i really like that's one of my favorites from his speech um and it's achieved by trying to make sure things go right not avoiding uh, things going wrong and that reminded me very much of when we had Ron Gann on a podcast who said you know we don't get what we want by focusing on what we don't want and I thought it was very similar you know and like I said before this podcast you know all of this stuff is very similar um, all of this stuff you know is connected so you know don't be bogged down if you're listening to this and thinking oh maybe safety too is what we need and or but I like safety differently or, or, or whatever human performance it really doesn't matter what you need to do is create your safety your way of doing that and that's whether that 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 is either if two or three things from this podcast this recorded episode of Eric or um, inspires you to go on a workshop and, and fully nail down on safety too and that's what you do then that's fine or it's take a couple of notes from this and listen to Ron talking about safety differently. Go and read Sydney Decker's books. You know, whatever. Go and listen to um, Sonny Gopal's podcast where he does an amazing interview. I think it's like five part interview with Professor Scott Geller about behavioural based safety. Um, you could take bits and bobs from all of that and create your safety. So don't get bogged down in trying to pick one system to fix everything. There is no silver bullet. Okay. There is your bullet that works for you. Find it. I'll catch you next week in the podcast, safe. Hey everyone, just a quick message from our affiliate program. Using DRM's online course, you can learn to move away from feelings of anger and frustration and get yourself some lasting positive change. Click the link in the description of this episode to get yourself a discount. And thank you for listening to Rebrand the Safety.